Gospels. This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2, beginning with the 13th verse. I'm going to go ahead and read to you from the New American Standard uh, 2020 edition and probably switch over to the New King James at some point after I read this. This is an incredible passage. Um, but as I'm reading through this book, and uh, there, there isn't, I don't know how long we're going to be in this book, but I think we're going to be in it for quite a long time because this is an incredibly full gospel. It's very different than the other three, as we're going to look at this morning. Um, uh, John wrote this, as most of you know, I've shared this with you before. He wrote this toward the end of his life, at least that's what it's believed, possibly even after the book of Revelation. Probably wrote it in the late 90s. And, and uh, very different than the other three. And one, it's a different perspective. Secondly, it's 60-plus years after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, about 60 years after Pentecost, with the, the beginning of the church, so there's a lot of uh, things have gone on within the church that I think had, that moved John to write this in the way that he wrote this. It's very different, again, than the other three Gospels. Uh, we'll get into that as we look at this text this morning, beginning with verse 13 of John chapter 2. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And, when the temple, and within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. Boy, when I read that, it makes me wonder who he made the whip for, but I'll uh, leave that to your imagination. But with the sheep and with the oxen, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's out of Psalm 69, verse 9. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this passage. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we may receive from you. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit that you might speak through me. And, Lord, we, we just ask that you would quicken our hearts, enliven our hearts, stir our hearts as we consider those things that the Spirit has for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
And everyone says, amen. I love the story of the cleansing of the temple. And if you're familiar with the other three Gospels uh, in Mark 11, Luke 19, and uh, uh, Matthew 21, the cleansing of the temple happens at the end of the triumphal entry, at the end of Jesus' ministry. Here, we're at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He, he's gone from uh, Cana of Galilee. He's come down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And then we have the, the story put in here about Jesus cleansing the temple. So the question is, what, did it happen once or twice? Uh, you know what I'm going to say. I didn't wear the T-shirt this morning, but your mileage may vary on this one. It may have happened twice. It may have only happened once. Augustine believed it happened twice uh, and had quite a lot to say about this that I, I'm, I'm not going to bother to get into that this morning. A lot of modern conservative, because I only read conservative guys, all right? Modern conservative scholars say it probably only happened once. The thing to remember that I've been sharing with you about the Gospel of John is that John is not reporting this like a newspaper uh, reporter. He's not standing out on the corner and writing things down and writing them as they occur. He is piecing together the story of Jesus using true, actual stories that actually happened. He's piecing them together in such a way so that he is causing us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that knowing this, that we might believe in his name. John chapter 20 says that very plainly. That's the purpose of this book. And it very well could have been that the Holy Spirit, who inspires all of Scripture, inspired John to write this in such a way. Now, Your mileage may vary. If you want to believe that though it just happened twice and it may may very well be and you're in good company with Augustine, then then that's fine too. Um, But I wanted to point that out because of the alleged discrepancies that we have in the gospel accounts. Again, John is very different. John is very different. He was moved by the Holy Spirit to speak differently, to quicken our hearts, to understand these things. And as you look at this text and see what's going on with this idea of the cleansing of the temple, it really relates to what we read a couple of weeks ago uh, with Jesus at the wedding feast at Canaan when he's sitting there and the water is changed to wine. The clay pots that represent humanity are filled with water, representing whom? the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit filling the clay pots, filling humanity, those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior, there's this producing of wine that is the producing of joy. Wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible. And and what John is saying very early, and he's not saying it directly, he's not writing a tech manual, remember. He's not writing a manual to teach you guys how to put your barbecue together. That's not how this is written. It's written very lyrically. It's it's a really strong classical piece of literature inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, And he's saying very early that there is a new change coming about in the ministry of Jesus. 
where we will have the infilling of the Holy Spirit producing joy, where we will have him cleansing the temple and, and really in some respects saying that the temple worship is no longer important, but what does he refer to the temple as? His father's house. In the other three Gospels, and I try to stay away from them as we're looking at John, but I think at times it's, it's important to, to at least just mention it. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. There's a shift taking place. But it, 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 it even resembles, it's within the same, follow me on this, it's within the same framework of the kingdom of God that is here but is not yet. Which Jesus clearly proclaims in all four Gospels, particularly the other three, about the kingdom of God being here, the kingdom of God being present, and yet the kingdom of God also being a future reality. And so you have this tension of the, uh, that we have between the here but not yet fully here, the here but not fully completed. Again, Jesus refers to the temple as his father's house. And he goes and he cleans up his father's house. Now, I listen to a guy. I don't listen to a lot of sermons. I read a lot of books. But anyway, I listen to a guy, and, and he has some really interesting insights. But one of the things he kept, he kept harping on over and over again about how angry Jesus was in this passage. I didn't read it. I didn't see it. Was he angry? Maybe. Did he have a right to be angry? Yes. Why? This display of selling these animals, this marketplace that was set up, could, could you imagine if we pulled all the seats forward and we set up a marketplace between that door and the seats and you'd have to, you'd have to put up with the vendors? You ever been to, to some of those places in some of those cities where you're walking along and they're trying to get you to come inside their, their establishment? That's kind of what this room, and you feel kind of like, just leave me alone, you know? If I want to come in, I'll come in. And, but you, you feel kind of, Exploited. What makes this even more important? And again, the, the shift that's coming, but not necessarily spoken of directly, is that it is very possible. Matter of fact, I'm really convinced that what was taking place with the selling of the sheep and the oxen and the doves and the exchanging of the money all took place in what is called the court of the Gentiles or the outer court. Now, imagine you are a, what would be considered a proselyte. You're not a Jew. But those who were Jews, the males were required to come to Jerusalem three times a year for the feast, and one of them is the Feast of Passover. The, Josephus would estimate that there was upwards of 3 million additional visitors in the city of Jerusalem during this time. This place is crowded. It's filled with people. I don't know how to break that down as far as how that would fit in our city here, but imagine, let's say, a couple hundred thousand, maybe. Um, most of you would do what? Just stay home. That's what you would do. 
but it's in the court of the Gentiles. What's important about that is the court of the Gentiles was the only legitimate place where a Gentile could come to the temple of the true and living God and to come and to worship God, to come and to pray. They've unco- archaeologists have uncovered signs that they had on the outside or the, uh, the, the entrance from the outer court into the inner court that basically said, if you're a Gentile, don't go any further. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course. But uh, you, you trespass uh, under a penalty of death. It was a two-tiered system. Now, that was never God's design. That was never God's design. And what we see here, too, is that, that in, where John is recording this, is, is he is, he's tipping Judaism on his head, if you will. Because Judaism had turned how to be uh, walking with, living with a, a servant of, submitted to the true and living God, they had turned it into something that they themselves could not even follow. Has so many rules and regulations. You have to do this, and you have to do that, and, and, and all this stuff. That, that, and they even had, they had writings about how, uh, that were actually loopholes of some of the laws, of how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath day and for it not to be considered work. Got really uptight, got really legalistic. And here, and we'll read this later in the Gospel of John, because if the Son has set you free, you better go back and read Torah. No. You're free indeed. Now, I think Torah has a lot to teach us. I really do. And I think it's valuable to read it. However, and if you don't know what I mean by Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, sorry, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all right? Also known as the Book of Moses. And imagine trying to go and to pray and to be a second-class citizen because you can't go into the inner court because you're Gentiles. I'm part Jewish, so I might be able to get away with some of this. But nonetheless... Some of you I know who are full-blooded Gentiles, you can't go into the inner court. I'll see you later, right? You're a second-class citizen, and they have so little respect for you that they set up a marketplace in your place of prayer. Think of that. Really, what a disrespect that was to the Gentiles who wanted to just come and to have a relationship with God and wanted to express that relationship. So Jesus makes the whip. Was he angry? I don't know. The text doesn't say that he was. He might have been. Again, that's another your mileage may vary scenario. And he makes the whip. And I find it interesting the way this is worded. Because he makes the whip and it says that he drives out the merchants and the sheep and the oxen. And he, he does that first, apparently. Then he tells the ones who were selling doves. What were they selling doves for? You guys, anybody know? They were for, the doves were also for a sacrifice, but they were for people who were too poor to be able to pay for an ox or a lamb. Interesting, who provided two turtle doves as a sacrifice 
for her purification after the birth of Jesus, it was Mary and Joseph. Obviously, they were very poor. And I, I, I think that after the, the dove salesmen saw what Jesus did to the cattle and to the sheep, they probably said, oh, you want us to take these things out? We'll take them out. And he overturns the money. Now, there's a lot that can be said about the cattle and the oxen there in the temple and that they were approved animals and that the doves were approved and that the, the, the temple only received a certain currency. Uh, and it was there for the convenience. Now, imagine being all the way up in Canaan and having to walk four or five days bringing a lamb with you. That is without blemish and without spot, and hopefully it stays without blemish, without spot on the trip. So yes, it was convenient for the, those who came to worship, but they took that convenience and turned it into uh, a way of making merchandise on them. We... One of my greatest theologians, my favorite theologians, is a guy named P.T. Barnum. And he said that there's a sucker born every minute. And, and, and I, I, it seems at times that that, and I'm not going to go off, I, I probably said too much already. But, but it seems that, that that's the view that some people have about the church. You know, and all the different things that if you just send money, we'll send you this or that or this book or that book. or You know, uh, people pleading to give them money so that they stay on the air. When I hear that, I change the channel on the radio. I'm sorry. I don't listen to Christian radio anyway. I'm, it's, okay, I guess I'm, I don't know. You work that out any way you want. How's that? I do read a lot of books, though, particularly this one. But anyway, God never wants people to make merchandise and to take advantage of his children. So I try to be careful never to, I'm hoping, I hope I never guilt any of you into serving here. I really do. I hope I never guilt any of you in. And if you feel guilted into serving here, then stop. And, and we've seen it at times. People, for whatever reason, served here, then they didn't serve here. And, and God raises somebody else up. And, and, and you know, I'll trust in that. You know, um, that's one thing about playing an acoustic guitar. We don't need a sound system. But, but nonetheless... You know, and I'm grateful for everybody who does what they do here. I really am. I really am. Please, ne- please don't, don't, don't ever think that I am not grateful for what you do because I see the work of your ministry as partnering together with the work of my ministry, and we're all partners in this thing together. We are. Again, last Sunday I wasn't here. I haven't listened yet. I heard it was great. What a wonderful thing if God calls me home this week that you guys are going to keep going. And, and, and that, that it's about the work of the ministry. It isn't about trying to take advantage of people. It isn't about trying to lord over people. And, and 
I think that's what might have really moved Jesus. Also, this barrier that, that the Gentiles, again, imagine the gent, court of the Gentiles probably being shoulder to shoulder with people. Now, I, I probably shouldn't say this. Have, don't, don't answer the question. Have you ever been to a rock concert? Okay. Have you ever gone up front in a rock concert? And you are, it's probably like that. All right. If you've been there, you understand. Um, Even a Christian concert. But anyway, what we have here is Jesus yet again using the physical to illustrate the spiritual. Just like in the changing of the water to wine. Just like in the conversation that he will have, that we will look at shortly with Nicodemus, who says, Good teacher, you must be from God because no one can do the works that you do unless he is from God, unless God is with him. And, and, and what must I do to, to enter, see the kingdom of God? And Jesus takes that wonderful conversation. I can't wait till we get to it. He takes that conversation and says, you must be born again. The necessity of the new birth to see the kingdom of God. And and so these three events are really, they're connected if you see them, if you see what's going on here. And, Again, it was, it was a, a message that was sent to the Gentiles that their worship wasn't important, that they weren't important. And that there was this creation of a barrier. In this case, the creation of a barrier of commerce. You know, the, the, we want to make in our gatherings, we want to make it accessible for everyone to experience God. Now, there have, there have been times we've had people who, I'll, I'm going to say this nicely, they wanted to experience God a little bit differently than how we do. And they stuck out like a very sore thumb. And they made, if you remember, if you're starting to recall this, and they drew all the attention upon themselves and not upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't want to sing with us. They wanted to shout over us, if you remember. That's a barrier. And, and, and so we, we want to establish a house of worship to where it's accessible to everyone. But the thing is, if, if 99% of us are doing one thing and a 1% is doing something else, then there's probably a problem with that 1%. Does that make sense? So these barriers to worship can be in different ways and different forms. And I, and, and I know that at times that, that when I was in other churches and I was sitting out here instead of sitting up here, uh, what I would do if, if somebody was distracting me, I would just close my eyes in worship. I would now, I can't see the words, but most of them by the time, you end up in, you ever notice you memorize most of these words? All right? You know, not, not that the words are not important, okay? But I notice that, I mean, so I get lost in my, in my notes all the time, and yet I, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, I know this song. You know, and, and uh, to, 
for that to be this expression of worship. And, 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 but we don't want these barriers to get in the way. One of the things, too, is that we have to remember that Jesus is God in the flesh. To me, that's, the, that's just, to me, that's a non-negotiable. Jesus is, is he's God in the flesh, and he has a right to do in his house whatever he wants. So he was totally within his right to do this. And he refers to it as his father's house. You've made my father's house a house of business. And, and then it's, it, 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 John tells us, he quotes from Psalm 69. And he says, we remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what I found interesting about Psalm 69, if you want to turn there with me really quick, I'm just going to pull out a few verses. In rabbinical thinking, Jewish rabbinical thinking, when there is a reference to a portion of Scripture, often it is really intended to be a reference to the entirety of that particular passage, not just one particular verse. Part of the reason for that is that John... Probably, I don't, I probably did not feel inspired to write the entire 69th Psalm here. Remember, this was on a scroll, so he probably didn't have, wanted, wanted to save some room anyway. But as I, was, I read Psalm 69 yesterday morning, and, and I, I found it. I mean, we almost read it this morning just uh, in, instead of 38. But as I, it, and it, it's a quote, it's taken from from. Psalm 69, verse 7, and all the way through to verse 9. I'll read to you verse 7 through 9. It says, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face, and I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. That's a very poetic way of saying the same thing. Was Jesus not a stranger to his brothers? He sure was. Now, they, they accepted him as Lord and Savior, and they recognized who he was after his resurrection. But he was alienated from it. See, Psalm 69, a lot of people don't realize this, but this is a messianic psalm. And it says in, in verse 9, it says, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Because what happens to Jews, and it should be the Jewish leaders in John chapter 2, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they want a sign. Give us a sign for why you did this. We're going to see this over and over again. But without taking the time to do it, if you really stop and think about it, how many times did God leave a sign in the Old Testament? A fair amount. A fair amount of times. He gave them a sign. Now, quick, back to Psalm 69, if you're still there. As I was reading through this, this also leaped out to me, beginning in verse 29, Psalm 69. But I am poor and sorrowful. 
Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. If the Son of Man be high and lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Okay. He's talking about worship here. Talking about singing and having a heart of worship as you sing. But what I found fascinating was verse 31. This, I, I, I'd never seen this before. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. The Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. The song of praise is more pleasing to God than the ox or the bull. Who was it? What was it that Jesus drove out of the temple that we see in John 2? Some of them were ox. What I think the psalmist is telling us here is that the song of praise pleases God more than the animal sacrifice. I think that's what he's saying here. And, and, that, and that the humble shall see this. The humble who could not go into the inner courts. This is rich. The humble, the Gentile, the person who just wanted to be right with God, the person who just wanted to know that their sins are forgiven. Who had a hard time doing that because of all the oxen and the sheep and the, and the money changing and, 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 the, and the doves in the way and all the people lining up to get their animal. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. Boy, that is an assuring verse, is it not? Because there are times in, in my personal devotional life that my heart is really desiring to seek the Lord, but it just seems like everything just gets in the way of that. The phone rings. Somebody knocks on the door. Now, now, now those, those interruptions, they happen, right? They happen. They're, they're not, those aren't, but, but still, at times, there, there's this distraction that takes place. Or when I do something stupid and I will read an article about some of the stupid stuff that's going on in the church, and that is a barrier to me. That distracts me. That plagues me. But it says the humble shall see this and they will be glad. And, and those who seek God, their hearts shall live. Do you seek God this morning? Jeremiah said that, uh, or the, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, you will find me when you search for me with what? With your whole heart. You will find me when you search for me with your whole heart. You know what that tells me among other things? This is kind of a curveball, so get ready. That tells me sometimes it's not easy to find him. 
and that you have to take an effort and really seek him out. So they asked for the sign. And I, I love this answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, obviously, from what we read in verse 20, the Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days? So John, thank God, explains it to us. And he said, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, that's... The sign. That, that, that is what is so important about this story and perhaps why it's at the beginning if, in fact, it only happened once. I said if, okay? I'm still on the fence. I, I don't know, to be honest with you. Because the authority that Jesus had is demonstrated in the sign of the cross. It's demonstrated in the sign that God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. It's demonstrated in the sign that we even see way back in the book of Genesis, real quick, when Abraham takes Isaac and he goes up on Mount Moriah to offer a sacrifice and Isaac is carrying the wood and Abraham's got the torch with, with the, the flame and Isaac says to him, Um, well, we've got the wood, we've got the flame. Um, Where's the lamb? Abraham, which the book of Hebrews later says that he had such faith in God's promise to him that he believed that if necessary, God was going to raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill that promise because Abraham understood the promise to him, the covenant to him, was also extended to Isaac and it was contingent upon Isaac having children, right? Abraham, in the book of Genesis, says to Isaac, and it can be translated this way, God will provide himself a sacrifice. God will destroy this temple and in three days raise it up. That's another way of saying it. Jesus here is prophesying about his own death and resurrection. That was the sign. And it's interesting because, because when Jesus says destroy this temple, in verse 19. And the Jews, in verse 20, 20, ask and say that this temple took 46 years to build. The temple that Jesus is talking about is the Greek word naos, N-A-O-S. It refers to the inner court only of the temple. It is the particular word that is also used by Paul when he talks about our bodies being what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. When he talks about us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, where, where, where you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, uh, I'll just read part of it to you, where, where God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, because Paul earlier tells them that they are the temple of the living God in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 6 that they will be my people. So the emphasis of the temple is no longer a building, but it is the clay pots. Earlier in John 2, that represent people who have been filled with water, the Holy Spirit. And it produces joy. See how these two are so tied together? To me, it doesn't matter if, the, if, if this is accurate chronologically. This is God-inspired writing. The Holy Spirit has his hands all over this as he's using these stories to illustrate even deeper truths if we simply stop and really give this some thought rather than trying to read it like a tech manual or a manual to assemble your barbecue. John is an incredible artist here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, it says, and it talks about us, us as Christians, uh, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple Naos, again, in the Lord. We're being fitted together into a holy temple to worship God. You've made my father's house a den of thieves, but my father's house was intended. I know I said it backward, I apologize. But my father's house was intended to be a house of prayer. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are called to be a house of prayer. I'll think that one through. I need another 30 minutes. I wasn't planning on even saying that, but I'm, I'm going to stop, Okay. But does it tie in to what Paul said when he said pray, what, without ceasing? I think it does. I can't let you go yet, okay? I've got to button it up a little bit better. Isn't prayer simply talking to God? Isn't that what it's really about? us communing with him, talking to him. And if I talk to him, what am I doing? I'm acknowledging him. I'm recognizing him. And as I pray, I am really inviting him into my my space. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
They understood that he had a zeal for the temple, the physical temple. Again, it goes back to Psalm 69. But how much more does he have a zeal for you, the temple of the living God? I'm going to leave you with that one.